The Sarah Lawrence Theater Program works, learns, and lives on the land of the Lenape, Muncie, and Wappinger peoples. We pay respect to the ancestors past, present, and future. The Performance Lab podcast is invested in the sharing of knowledge and cultivation of curiosity between makers. We invite guest artists to lead a workshop with the MFA candidates of Sarah Lawrence College. After which, we interview them. We ask questions tailored to their individual practice, delving deeper into the how and the why of creation. Inspiration is all around us. But how do we hone in on the subjects that drive us? They share with us their tips, tricks, and sources of inspiration. Reflect on past performances and projects and keep us up to date on what is next stay tuned for the performance lab podcast hello good morning kind of my name is chisom awache and i'm here with marissa conroy and niall harris niall is a performer and director of live works of art he's done a few things and helps to do a few more god willing niall thank you so much for joining us today Hey, Chisom. Hey, Marissa. Yes, I'm so happy to be in conversation with y'all today. I was so grateful to be in person with y'all last week and to move the conversation digital this week. Can you give us a brief overview of what you do, what you enjoy to do, what your work is looking like these days? Yeah. So like the bio says, I'm a performer and director in a variety of capacities. You know, my life is a love letter to the theater. So I've spent nary a decade trying to figure out how to put compelling things onto the stage and sequence them in a way that make people feel things. I have a classical theater background and studied plays all my life and knew that I wanted to make theater that was bigger than words. First shows I did was musicals in middle school. And what I loved about musicals was the fact that, you know, characters sing when they words are no longer enough and they have to sing. And I often try to make my shows similar, that it sits in the space that is beyond words, that words are not sufficient. So we have to engage in this sort of heightened sort of space together. So I I have not abandoned musical theater, though the, the tools I use to do that are not the same tropes of musical theater. In my work, I use dance and sound and music and song to create spectacles and tell stories at the end of the day, even if the stories are not linear. So that's kind of where my my head is at around the creation thing. Thank you. Can you please explain to our listeners the exercise that you took us through during Performance Lab last week? Of course, yeah. Over the past few months, I became fascinated. A colleague of mine in a play that I was working on shared me a book. Um, right next to me, actually. Um, shared a book with me called A New Practical Guide to Rhetorical Gesture and Action which was a book by the National Theater of the United States of America, which is a theater company in the New York City, in the New York City, in New York City, that shuttered maybe like seven or eight years ago. And this book was the final gesture of their company. And what I thought was really interesting about the book was that it posited as a sort of theory of acting that was abnormal and not Stanislavski-based, using gesture as a, in, like, as a way into making a performance. So as a conceptual sort of like framework, I thought that was fun and interesting and a unique way of approaching the thought of naturalistic acting. And then additionally, the book is sort of a um, index of performers from the downtown New York art scene from like the late 2000s to the 2020-ish time period. So as someone who as like an introduction to a scene or a community of artists, I see it as a really great encyclopedia of an artist of a specific generation. You know, I don't know fully what curricularly what y'all are doing at Sarah Lawrence, but I know when I think of Caden's work and I think about the lineage of art making that y'all are doing there, devising work and 
making your own work, it felt like a really natural connection point in regards to creative lineage. So I signed the introduction of that book that we spoke about. And then as an exercise, I just used the gestures as a entry point for improvisation. So we did some a facilitated sort of improvisational score where performers would embody the gesture that was illustrated in the book. Another performer would read the poem and then we would switch. And then someone was invited to do a movement interpretation of the gesture or the, the state of emotion that was being described in the book. And then another person would improvise a poem about said gesture or said emotion. And then we just like kind of talked. So that was kind of what we did in class. But I think that for me, improvisation is such a big entry point into my work and how I view the world. It's not just a tool for devising. It's a way of life, really. I mean, improvisation is key. We're improvising right now. We don't know what we're going to say next. Then I really think for myself as an artist, honing my improvisational candor is a daily practice. So I feel like that was what I was hoping to do in the classroom in our time together. Yeah, it was really cool to see this, like you were saying, like a physical archive of this snapshot of a certain type of theater and at a very specific time in New York, because it is so much of what we talk about in our classes and what we're looking at, again, because the program is run by Caden and we have professors like David Newman and Tay Blow and we had Sybil Kempson up until last year. And so it was cool to like that someone happened to flip to the page that she was on. So it was really nice kind of having or knowing, even just like knowing that there is like a, a textbook, not a textbook, but like that's yeah. based on like some of these things that we've like been just conceptually thinking about. So it was nice to have a tangible thing connected to it. So thank you for introducing us to that. Super of course. Cool. Yeah. I mean, one of my peers, Jess Barbaregalo, who is in the book as well, introduced me to the book and I am like, you know, what is the, the introduction speaks to is how like the history of that avant-garde community historically and particularly that community is very hard to locate. It's in the oral histories, it's in the program notes, it's in, but the sort of to trace that creative lineage, you have to do some investigative work. And that book was a kind of an aha moment to me as well of like, oh, look at this, all of these sort of, all this being compiled in one place. Like this is, and that was really refreshing to me as a reader of the book for the first time just two months ago. So I was grateful to share it and bring it into a collective conversation yeah and the the exercises too like I just have to say like a lot of like I just saw some of the most like grounded performances and like people showing up in just like really authentic ways that like we haven't done in a while and it was really like that triangulation of text movement and the sound that was going in the background you know and I actually like <laughs> at the end of the workshop I went up and took like a little picture of your phone <laughs> but I could tell what music was playing so it was just like so avant-garde one-on-one. It was just some Tim Hecker. I also liked the changing of the the seat, the set in between goes. I that added a layer that was fun, made it more fun to watch because like, yeah, scenography is so important. Like, you know, that's why we we're just talking off camera about opera, but I really do think that like, how can we bring these sort of things in their purest form, sound in its purest form, improvisatory text, gesture, scenic design or installation or some sort of sculptural component how can we bring all of these things together in their purity and then create that's what theater is is that the, it's a it's by design a multidisciplinary interdisciplinary art form so i feel like trying to i was another thing that the exercise was hoping to do i suppose in a very informal way was to bring those to the forefront i was thinking about how well on the day we our cohorts you know have been together for a while now so we have a Pretty good idea of how we work together. But you were talking about this sort of downtown scene of theater that you learned a lot about when you were 
in school. But when you came to New York, realized that they were sort of no more just like hard to find, difficult to sort of like source. And so I've been wondering how in response to that, you have been trying to find, you know, and make your own community or cohort of artists now that you're like here and working in the city and what you look for in new collaborators. Yeah, I mean, community is so cliche, but it's so key. The only reason why I feel encouraged to live this sort of nonsensical life that makes no sense is because I have peers of people who are like, oh, I see you like, even like, you know, what you're doing makes sense to me and it makes sense to each other. So that's like the kind of sounding board that keeps the sanity conversation in check. But yeah, I mean... I just see a lot of shows. Like I really try to just, I try to see like three shows a week and I just like go to the theater a lot. And I feel like that's how I've made my friends. That's how I've, you know, continued my aesthetic visioning and trying to piece together the theater that I want to make. And that's how I find the people who make the theater that I want to make. And um, so, yeah, so going to see shows has been really important to me and identifying who my community of makers are. And then how I choose collaborators is um, similar. Like, you know, something that I think about a lot that I have some issues with a little bit in the sort of community of artists that we engage with is there's no auditions. Like people are not auditioning like for a small off off Broadway device based theater work. That's not a thing. Like that's just not a thing. You only you work with people that you know and you invite people into your processes that you know from doing work together in the past, seeing each other's work, being in conversation with each other on the internet, going to the clubs together, seeing each other, just, you know, you know, just like, you know, that's how I have found all my collaborators. And yeah, I do think that that poses an equity and accessibility sort of conversation that I think is kind of pseudo problematic is like, if it's going to be insular, the, the, the pros and cons of that sort of insularity is something that I think about a lot, but how I pick my collaborators is just, yeah, people who I've seen, do amazing work that <laughs> I'm like that's really cool and I think that we would get along and vibe and so much for me like I said it's about improvisation so it's just about like and that's something that you can't teach people I'm not interested in teaching people how to do that of course like my rehearsal processes are honing in onto a thing that we come together on like collectively but it's just like you know pretty quickly if you have a improvisational candor with someone you have the same sense of humor aesthetic values like you know I love a little dissonance I love a little noise I love an off-color joke I love someone who has like stamina to do a frenetic thing for long durations and like those sorts of things that you just kind of find um so those are the folks who I've chosen to work with um right now and um for the past few years that I've been making work yeah I just get so inspired I know some theater makers don't care to go to the theater but I not to, I mean, everyone has a different stance on it, but I'm almost more inspired going to the theater than making theater. Like I love sitting in a theater and watching something. I have a very short attention span. I have a phone addiction. I can't really sit in my house and like watch a movie for two hours. Like I can't do that. Like I'm going to be on my phone. I'm going to do something else. Like as we know, technological, but the theater is the only place where I would sit down for two hours and be super ultra present. And that's what I love about both sides of the engagement. But that's what I love about, yeah, I just love going to the theater. It's like the thing that I always want to do, even if the shows are bad. So that's where my head is around creating, create, um, building creative community and collaborators. Thank you. Yeah, Versa, we were talking about this, what, yesterday? One thing that this program has really been good for is finding at least one other person to be like, hey, 
I need your help with this thing. It's 10 p.m. and it's due very soon. Can you? And I think we've both found other people who've been like, I mean, yes, I'm already outside your apartment. Like, let's do this, which has been very exciting amid the exhaustion. <laughs> it was really nice to see under the radar, some under the radar shows this year because I'd never been before. And I only saw a few, but it was a little wild to think that like all of that was happening in what, a week? a week and a half because I know a lot of other people in our cohort were trying to see things and literally just like running back and forth to to watch everything but I was also wondering about Under the Radar because it was my first sort of like entry to it and how Testify went for you as far as producing it with the um, with the festival and just like what that process was like yeah um, it was super super cool like you know Under the Radar has been one of my like dreams since I was like 17 years old was to like be in the under the radar festival at the public theater like that is like historically is like the magnum opus of a certain type of conversation of quote-unquote experimental work and seems to be like can be a launching pad towards an international conversation around your work and they really have cultivated a really unique sort of um platform of international presenters and folks who enjoy experimental performance so I learned about that festival in 17, 18, early, college, early undergrad years and like knew that that was just like something that I always wanted to be a part of. And that's also a part of speaking to creative community. And like, even though the artists who I discovered under the radar ended up not being in community with, that was a big part of me discovering my taste and trying to piece together for myself the sort of creative conversation that I was a part of was stocking all of the under the radar and American realness program festivals and festival programs and just trying to figure out who were these artists who were touring the world, making these weird little things. But uh, making Testify was really cool. Like my work is like long form in the sense that I will exp I will work on a certain theme, idea, costume piece, material proposal across multiple shows. So this is, Testify was purposefully a solo that's a part of a bigger body of work, dealing with a lot of stuff that, my previous work has dealt with around American nationalism, the history of a philanthropy and the memory of a dear friend of mine, Trevor Bazile, who passed away, the things that I inherited in the wake of his passing. And uh, yeah, so I wanted to do something that was solo and I wanted it to be pseudo scripted, but also pseudo improvised. So I started to call it an improvised lecture on American nationalism. And um, making the show was really smooth. You know, it was actually like, it was tricky, you know, this presentation was supposed to happen at Under the Radar 2022, but was canceled because of the Omicron surge of COVID in New York City. So it has been, it was a long time coming. I've been in conversation with the public for about three years on that, for that work. And um, that work was presented as a part of their devised theater working group, which is a, a support network that they create for emerging devised artists to kind of be in cohort together. We have cohort meetings for a year and then they give us producerial support to help make our works. So that was really cool to, of course, like you were just speaking about your program, to be in conversation with artists like myself, trying to figure out how to do our thing. And the public is a, it's an off-Broadway theater. They have a different sort of, different type of producing model that's different than a lot of the DIY or art spaces or dance spaces that I have presented in. And I know some of my peers in the program have presented in. So it was really helpful to have allyship and trying to figure out how to produce your theater your work at a union house which has a different sort of labor structure around it that is a little tricky and complicated because you know like i'm so used to working in spaces where artists have a little bit more autonomy that like if i want to move a light i can get a ladder and move it i can 
do a thing. I can, you know, I can use haze. I can do certain things. But when you're working in a union house, you literally are not allowed to touch lighting units. Only like, you know, a union lighting can do that. And if you want to use liquid on stage, like there's a bubble that at the end of the show ends with a bunch of bubbles. Like that was a whole multi-week conversation about getting permission about the bubbles and like certain things like that. So that was like the big sort of hiccup for me and trying to translate my work into a different sort of venue. But Overall, it was just the most humbling experience ever. Like I did three performances and each three shows were radically different. I think the show y'all came to, maybe that Thursday night show was the opening, the opening night was the worst show I've ever done in my whole life. I cried in the wings for an hour afterward. I was so mortified. I felt like all of my worst dreams had come true because I was having tech issues. I had some sound issues. And I was really just like so mortified and I was really sad. But then after doing the show again and it went better, like I was saying, like, you know, the works are about imp the act of improvisation is the subject of the work itself, such that you cannot fail the score. Like it, it's it's like, a, it's not that it's fail proof, but like me thinking that I failed and didn't do what I intended to do. I still in that failure did something that became the subject of that performance. And it kind of had its own meaning that was revealed. And the score is structured such that like, you know, I do the gingerbread man section. I go to the lecture podium. I talk from my laptop. I become Woody. I do the dance. I hold the white flag. I go up the stairs. I choke myself out. And then the bubbles come. So the score is kind of set such that even if the in-between is all hubbub, I did have to look back because I watched all three videos closely. I watched documentation from each day and I was like, how is this different? Why is this different? And this show that I thought was so bad, when you like scrub through it really quickly, it is the same thing. Like it happened. Like it happened at... But like the energetic nuances are just so different. And because my microphone was broken, the character Gingerbread Man, it was hard to communicate as him in a way that I had to like, and then once I take him off, I was able to win the audience back. But I'm so used to being a bit more communicative as the Gingerbread Man. So I felt very isolated from the audience. And then the journey of the show became that of from isolation to coming together when energetically I wanted to do something slightly different. But nonetheless, it was humbling to get to do three shows and figure out like do I want to make improvisational shows why do I make improvisational shows what does it feel like to fail and then when your worst dreams come true quote unquote like I know it wasn't that bad of a show but in my head I was so mortified but once your worst dreams come true you have nothing else to be afraid of which is kind of like was kind of like my sort of gifts from that like that UTR show was something that I have been looking at for multiple years so many presenters in the house everything was weighing on this I was putting so much pressure on myself and like, it literally didn't go the way I wanted to. And I was mortified. And then I still got to do another show. I still have a career. I still have a life to live. And like, suddenly like all my fear about the act of performance, about a lot of it has really dissipated. And my whole ethos about performing has changed after that hard, quote unquote, hard experience. And I think the show is fab. And I just really just um, am proud of the work that I made. And like, it felt like it, um, as we hope to do, like, you know, introduce more people to the work and like have started conversations about the work that endure after the festival is over. So that's kind of my experience during Testify. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that like <laughs> very personal experience of what you had. Like as I'll speak for myself, but like as someone who's in school and like feels that feeling of failure <laughs> a lot, it's, it's just like really nice to know that that people who are out there doing the thing still feel that and are still like, cool, yeah, but now I have a second show and it's fine and it's good. And technically nothing bad happened. Things are okay. 
so th- thank you like especially like sure, yeah. just like given the, the timing of like right now while, while we're talking and like i had my final dress last night she is is performing her piece for the first time tonight like that story your timing of that story was chef's kiss perfect so i appreciate it glad um, to share yeah this stuff is not that serious it is that serious it is not that serious and i said this in the workshop like like what i love about the work that we get to make like for better and for worse, this is a bi- this is a double-edged sword. We create the criteria of success for our own work. Like, that's what I was really reminded. Like, if I make a show that is about dancing with failure and I come on stage and quote-unquote fail, like, I, I, I made the rules of the engagement. Like, I, I can't I can't fail my own rules. And if, it might not be entertaining for someone to watch. Critics might think something else. Presenters might not think it's right for their space. Whatever. But I'm after their creative project that that doesn't really matter like i i'm i'm experimenting with form i created the experiment like i created the the situation so only i can really judge its success but i also think that's a double edged sword because i do hate work that is super super insular and it's not you know i don't i'm not not concerned with my audience i'm not like not trying to like i don't give a f what they think you know i'm just doing my thing ah, la 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 I'm not into that either because I think that, you know, theater is about coming together. So for an artist to try to like actively ignore the experience of the people that are coming to witness them feels a little complicated to me. But I'm really grateful that um, there was something that resonated with y'all about the performances that y'all about to do this weekend and like having some fun and just yeah doing the thing. Yeah, I think that's been like, that's been the conversation that we're all trying to have with each other now is like, okay, we've all like freaked out. We've all thought the world was ending. It's not. Can we have fun? Like, <laughs> we find the joy. Like, it's fucking hard to find the joy, but I think she's there. And really can do that. So, yeah, jumping back in to you're talking about improvisation in the work and also in the, um, workshop that you did with us last week you were also talking about this goal of yours to yeah embody this kind of feeling of stream of consciousness language on stage which you know is hand in hand with improvisation and I was wondering if you could kind of walk us through some of your methods of of getting there I know you've mentioned that one of it is like just truly like through doing some improvisations but if there are like any other things that you found are yeah. Well, to find things like repeating is Janine's story in the house <laughs> tonight, because that's that was the one that oh, really hit my sight. Yes, I do. Yes. Give me, give me that thing called reparations. It's Janine Tesori in the house. Yes, Janine Tesori in the house. I'm a musical theater girl through and through. Like that's also like that's also yeah. I love those theater jokes. I do like plant jokes that like are for different people. So that's funny that that's what attached to you. And like some people, I was like, who is Janine Tesori? But those who know. No, like that's and that's what's fun about the theater. But yeah, improvisation. What has helped me so much with my improvisation, and I approach it from two different is mask wearing. Like actually, like mask as a methodology, like in the physical sense. Like I wear a lot of masks in my work. The mask of Barack Obama, the ginger man, Timmy. Like a lot of the work is about masking and unmasking, and then that being a stimulus to um to activate a different part of yourself. And like just like you know, I we did a lot of physical theater work in undergrad, and like you know. Yeah. Covering yourself actually reveals yourself as very like one on one, like, you know, putting on a different mask gives you the sort of egoic freedom to access a different part of your your body. If it's a physical thing and or like your spirit, if it's like an energetic thing. 
So that has been a big entry point for me and figure out my improvisational thing is like wearing the gingerbread man for the past two years has really given me a different sort of feeling of like, yeah, freedom performing. Because I really, as a someone coming from the dance conversation, I was really annoyed with how I was always so caught up with the shape that my body was making in space. And I could just like putting on the gingerbread mask, like it, it obscures the silhouette of my body. And then I have more freedom to do different things because I don't have to like look at every of my gangling limbs. I can just be like a big thing. So that's one angle. But then also masking in another way is, you know, a lot of my work I work with in the show y'all saw this tech piece was effing me over, but I work with my little amplifying box and these little headsets that I wear, these wireless headsets. And by design, the sound is kind of crunchy and um, a little unpredictable because it's working with analog waveforms and I can change the volume and the gain setting to kind of create different sorts of like sonic feedback. And in a way that has become another mask that I use to distort my voice, to change my voice and to take my obscurity, like to, to obscure my voice in a sort of in and out way. And that gives me freedom as well to kind of just say a bunch of shit and just like start talking because like, it's not by design. Like you're not supposed to hear every word by design. It's like sort of voice as texture, voice as something else. And that masking of my voice through that technological framework has also freed me up to feel like, oh, literally I can just say whatever and like 40% of it will be legible, 60% will not. If I really want something to be heard, I'll say it a bunch of times because I really, no, I really want you to hear this. No, seriously, I really want you to hear this. So I think masking has been a big thing for me in regards to like um, bringing up my improvisational impulses. And then dancing, like, you know, dancing, like physical improvisation and speaking improvisation are two different things, even though they're the same thing. Like I just started heavily, heavily, heavily using my voice in my work in this way in the past year or two, like kind of with the gingerbread man, really trusting myself to be like, yeah, you're just going to say whatever comes to your mind. Like I have things that I want to say in my shows. Like I have one liners written out, like haters going to hate white dick going to penetrate. Like I would never lie to you. Like I have like these one liners like that I know. And like when I rehearse, like through the improvisational process, I'm like, oh, that's a good line. Like let's write that down so I don't forget it. How I say it, what order I say it in, that's up for grabs, but the sort of like thematic frameworks are there. But um, yeah, that's been my sort of entry into improvisation in the past year or two that's been helping me. I think we were both really excited by the by the amplifiers that you brought in. That's also something that Marissa is, is doing in, in their work, their thesis project right now, that is very exciting to me to watch. I can't wait to see the whole thing. But that was also something that I was thinking of doing in mind and ended up changing to something else because the tech in our tech booth, she has a mind of her own. She's doing her best and that's okay. But yeah, it was just very, it was exciting to me to, for me to uh, watch the rest of the class uh, use that tech while we were in grad lab. And it was just something that was like, it is very freeing and does make improvisation easier for me personally because in the work that I'm doing, when things get very vulnerable, I'm just like, well, I don't want to say these things to this but having something that can distort and and sort of create that distance makes it easier to get through the work that, like, you know, in the back of your mind, you probably should push yourself to make, but you have all of these hangups in the way. Um, mm-hmm. So it's exciting just to see that, like, as a as a future tool for me to probably use going forward. Don't be mad if I do it. I mean, you can be mad, but... No, please. These tools are, like, open source tools. Like, I feel like that's something that has been... I don't know if it's humbling or not, but what I also see in my peers in here, we are all doing the same thing. We're all literally making the same work. It's like kind of like 
upsetting and also freeing at the same time. Like I look to my peers and like, okay, you about to improvise a dance over there, say some scripted text over there, have a scenic element come down over here. And then you're going to put on a new costume, take that costume off. And then you're going to like, like, it's like, you, there's only like so much you can really do. And that's okay. But that's how art movements are made. Like, yes, like, you know, like we all are generationally working through similar questions. People want to talk about identity. People want to improvise. We're not into technique-based dance anymore. Like, that's cool. Like, that's just like, there are things that are we all are working through. And then when people, when we get historicized, like they will look at it, the, like theorists and historians will look at it from the outside in and be like, oh, this was Afro improvisation. And they'll created a movement. But yeah, we all are. There's a porousness between all of us that I'm trying to not be precious about and like try to be like, this is my motif and this is mine. Like we all are doing similar things. Materials will pre like show up in each other's works. We work with the same people, recurring collaborators, certain things like that will make a lot of our work be really in conversation with one another. And that's, I think the beauty of it and something that I've been trying to um, not be so um, threatened by. I was also thinking about, I guess, content of the work. Uh, we talked very briefly in class about, as Black artists, maybe feeling externally or internally pressured to talk about white supremacy and anti-Blackness and all this stuff. Not that it's not valid, but how sometimes that just isn't what you want to do. And so I'm wondering um, if you could talk to a specific project that I think you mentioned where you were just like very much rejecting that. And I just wanted to get to the a conversation about white nationalism that you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, the identity-based conversations recently have just been tricky and just, like, formulaic in a way that I'm really trying to shirk and haven't really felt much. Um, um, just, just been curious about, like, you know, with the rise of, like, you know, um, racial and cultural awareness has come a broadening and a narrowing, I have felt, in regards to the type of conversations that are um, really palatable to folks around Black identity. And um, and I just always, like, you know, not that I've always been a contrarian, but I've always just struggled with having that conversation in an expected way. I made a lot of pieces in my early years very much about trauma and about, like, I was putting myself in very harmful situations, really was, like, making a lot of work around racialized violence. And then once the converse, the cultural conversation globally turned so hard about that, I just had no interest in making work in that way because it somehow felt like it was feeding white consumption, even if it was trying to say that it was not, no matter how radical black, it was still kind of somehow was, even if it was like, works that were like oh i'm going through pain and you white people should feel bad and like that is like also like playing into consumption and i just kind of was really like and then that's when i started to think about white consumption and then that's how i tripped into these other thematics that i'm working through because i think that like so often are not like people want to learn about white culture by learning about black culture or people want to learn about american culture particularly by talking about like they they expect me to want to talk about my experience as a black person to understand a question about America. But I've just started to think about like, oh, let's maybe turn a mirror and maybe let's talk about white culture and or culture, the culture of whiteness. I'm getting a little lost in my own thoughts, but that's some of the things. It's shirking expectations. The trivialities of like sort of race-based neoliberal conversation just was really uncomfortable to me. And like 
yeah, healing looks different for everyone. And I've always had a prickly sort of masochistic way of viewing the world and like how I seek freedom and how I want to embody myself as a black person. I can do a whole bunch of different things. And I've just been feeling really liberated to to do that in ways that are, are genuine to me and not formulaic based off of how other people are talking about their identity and what healing looks like to them and trying to not feel judged because I felt very judged about the things I've chosen to do on stage or in my personal life about being not in the best interest of the black community. And I can't hold that. That's not mine to hold, but I can do what's, inter what's in my best interest and I can follow my sort of aesthetic and somatic pursuits. And yeah, it's a little flawed. I think the logic is definitely flawed, but that's a little where my head is at on that conversation right now. It's like vague. That's a little vague, but I don't know. It's, it's, it's a prickly, it's, it's, a it's, it's tricky. Like I could talk about certain things and even being on the record, I'm trying to like, I actually caught myself kind of wanting to like skirt certain ways of speaking about it because I felt very candid and then I suddenly felt not so candid, which is maybe speaks to something. But I think that that too is where the work is coming at as well. It's like that sort of instinct that I felt to be like, oh, let me, let me choose my words. And that's why I testify. That's why I tried to do exactly what I was like, what if we don't choose our words? And like, and what if I just do that instead? And like, what is what are we left with? So I think that that's where the work is actually sitting in. It's trying to challenge the feeling I just felt about trying to pick my words about how I talked about this, because depending on how I spoke about this, I could piss a lot of people off. And that prickliness is, I think, what the work has become about. Yeah, that. thank you for that. I, I think I mentioned in class this question of authenticity also, not in the same way as far as like people in the community being pissed off by what, however it is I'm making my own work, but my family and my extended family and then like Africans on the continent and what they think like diasporic work or whatever the hell like um, should look like and how that also comes into the work too in different ways, like with my piece, even I notice that even the way I've written it is not nearly as like it's edited and and the words are chosen with care, but not so much to the point that that it is when I write other things is sort of like get myself to get myself out of this hole of just like, well, I need to be careful not to, you know, step on any toes or anything like that. But that is a balance that we do need to keep in mind because we are out here trying to make work and sometimes our oftentimes our jobs rely on community with other people. And so that's a it's a very daunting, interesting, kind of exciting mess to be in. But I'm really excited uh, with the ways that you are like pushing against that and finding space to do your own thing and trying to be careful, but like not too, too careful. And that's what's yeah. freeing about the stage is like the stage is a container for fakeness and realness and like trying to really like blur like, my work. It's like purposely really trying to blur, 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 blur that line. Is this now talking to me? Is this some mass character talking to me? And like, I, I would hope that the stage is a space for us to imagine different realities, nice realities and bad realities, and imagine new things. And also the space is, the theater space is a real space, is a real discourse space, collapsing that, that safeness between audience and st person on stage. So you're in this room, that sort of binary has been kind of crushed and is a little more challenging. It is how I'm provoking you real or is it fiction based and is it imaginary? And that sort of uncomfortable space of like cognitive trying to wrestle with like what is real and what is not. Am I safe or am I not? 
am I a part of this? Am I not? Is Niall making me the butt of the joke or is Niall making himself the butt of the joke? And that sort of unclarity there, I think is where I have found and my sort of practice energetically is a productive spot for this sort of chapter of the work and trying to really hone in on that is where my head is at. But yeah, it's really beautiful to hear how you're thinking through those questions as well in your own work. And it's funny that I guess that's just what the rest of my life is going to be like, what is this meaning? How do I do this thing? Is my brain, is my brain working? Am I on the right track? Am I, am I overthinking the entire thing? So that'll be fun to Literally, literally. <laughs> um, I noticed that you were doing some work internationally. I think you were in Accra some years ago. Yeah. And was just yeah. wondering what it's like to create work uh, internationally and how that process is maybe different from when you're making work abroad. Is the audience reception different? Yeah, it's a totally different thing. Um, I was fortunate to spend two months in West Africa last summer. I was in Kumasi, Ghana, at a really wonderful residency called Pefrocrae's International Artist Residency, led by this incredible artist, um, Vebene Fiazzi, who's an incredible, challenging, brave performance artist, who is a trans woman living in Ghana who is doing some really, um, yeah, just important performance-based work around queer identity, queer family, and she owns, she starts a residency. She has a residency site on her property that she rents for her and her family. So it was really beautiful to get to be there with her, her partner, her two kids, and some local artists from Ghana, and then around six or seven international artists that they host monthly. Um, and I met Fabene through a residency we did together at the Watermill Center here in the United States in 2017. And um, so that was the container for which I was there. And um, yeah, it was really interesting. I didn't only did one one public performance and one like sort of panel symposium sort of conversation thing. So I can't really speak a lot, a lot about the experience of presenting my work abroad in that context. But I just know that I'm asking American questions. I came really like to face with that. And like, that's why, what's kind of what I love about my work. But like, I'm talking about a very specific American conundrum that is not global i mean yes racism is global like you know racial dichotomies are global but particularly the sort of dynamic that we were just talking about and our our relationship to that dynamic misinformation internet brain all these sorts of things national it's that is very american like the sort of issues that we're facing right now and that sort of cognitive dissonance i mean cognitive dissonance is global but how my how i'm approaching that theme is very much very specific about conversations we're having about in america so that was um, challenging, but also it was just kind of like, I was really focusing on development when I was there. So it was kind of like, oh, I, how do I explain these ideas to people who are not a part of this conversation was a, definitely a learning curve and something that was interesting. Did it change how I was making? Not necessarily because I knew that like the audiences that I was, I was preparing this work for an American audience, quote unquote. So, but being in Ghana was really just, beautiful and tricky i mean it's kind of what we were talking about i think in class about diaspora and feeling like it's so cliched but i felt it for such a long time like you know i have ancestral heritage going back to ghana and yet i'm not Ghanaian. i'm american i am and i'm not that sort of both and sort of ness of it was really tricky like you know to try to like trying to locate a part of yourself in a place and also like so totally being a multi-generation American and just not being of that place. So like really trying to figure out that severed gap, like, you know, it's 
that is the ancestral work that is the wake work that is to quote christina sharp like that is the sort of like that is that is where that wound sits and i had to face that very like square in the face like in a way that i abstractly had danced alongside of but was experiencing like you know the feeling of cultural isolation and that was hard but um i was so grateful for the experience and i really like um why the show is called testify was i actually kind of um so I knew I had been doing these sort of improvisational performances, using my voice, yada, yada, yada. I was aware of that. That I was aware of. But then I did an Instagram Live when I was there, and I named it Testify. And then because the residency was surrounded by three churches. And the churches were Christian churches, but there's a really interesting mix of Christian influences and indigenous Vudon sort of practices. They would have these really long speaking in tongue sessions, prayer sessions along throughout the night, and they would amplify their voices from the church outside of the churches in these really sort of distorted analog, tinny sort of ways that was really like intense. And then I was like, oh yeah, in many ways, like, you know, how I have been using my voice in my work is much like speaking in tongues. It's definitely, a, and you know, is very, even though, you know, I use words that are of our language, that we all know, or English speakers know rather. And that's where the idea of framing the practice as a testifier, a testification, be it a religious testification or a legal testifying on someone's behalf. So like the sort of double entendre of that word and the religious sort of practices I observed in Ghana sort of inspired that lineage of thinking. And that's kind of where that show of the public landed. So that's a little bit about my time abroad, but you know, I feel like, as we all know, like, you know, I just encourage it so much, like so much of my um, thinking has been informed by travel. Like I've always had the travel bug. I've been traveling. I've been a world traveler since I was like a teen with my parents, but then like even through my early adulthood, like seeking out travel opportunities wherever I could, it's been such like, so formative for me and like understanding the thinker that I am. That's so beautiful. Yeah, this idea of needing to weave this very large bubble that is America that we're in to go and learn more things about yourself and grapple with different questions and then to be able to see pretty directly it sounds like like how that is affecting the work just like how do you consider making things it just sounds like a wonderful opportunity a challenging one but but still like very beautiful and I'm so glad that you have had that experience yeah but I've only been to Nigeria once so far and it was pretty recently like 2018 and going and seeing family and putting faces to names and, and voices really was a lot of fun. But I don't think I was thinking about how being there informed my work in the same in the same way. So I'm looking forward to going back at some point and yeah. see what what connections like. And you should look into this residency. Like Bene's spot, um, um, Pefferkreis is like a really incredible residency and like she's like really incredible and it's very accessible and like uh, uh, folks of all cultures it's like really really a great great residency if you want to spend some time on the continent but yeah that's where i'm at that's where i'm at with the thinking and the doing we were talking during a performance lab about you know getting these working in tv or like other mainstream mainstream ways to like better support the theatrical work that we all want to make yeah. wondering if you got an hbo or like like a24 uh overall deal um jeremy o'harris calls you tomorrow and it's just like hey pitch me something what is what is the pilot of the show what is the film what's it about 
I have this short film idea that I think I could turn into, I think like it would be a really fun as a pilot to something else. It's about, it's about millennial artists, you know, living in New York City. But all I know is that a boy sells, I think I'd mentioned this in class, but a boy sells his kidney to produce a dance show at Dixon Place because like he has nowhere else to turn. Like, and he doesn't want to like ruin his pride to like do a GoFundMe. Like that's so like, like that's so like, so like he's so above that. Like he's not going to do a GoFundMe, but he believes in his art. And he like sells his kidney in the black market to get like six grand to make this show that like is really like mediocrely attended. It's like not that big of a deal a show. Like it ends up like you get to see the show and it's really just like just a very standard like puppet like devised theater show at Dixon Place. It's not like it's not like anything that crazy. And he like sells his kidney. That's like my short film idea as a short. But I do think that that is a really great introduction to a character in a world and like a thing. Jeremy O'Harris also has this like idea about doing a reality TV show about downtown dancers and downtown performers. And like, you know, like no, no one has really talked about that. So that's another idea. But um, but yeah, a, a kid who sells his kidney to make a puppet show. We've all been there. We've all been there. I mean, maybe we haven't all sold our kidneys, but we've all thought about things that we would do to get some money to make an art project that isn't crowd funding on the Internet. <laughs> like, so, yeah, that would be my answer. <laughs> <laughs> that is I shouldn't be airing on the podcast and someone's gonna st steal my idea but this is real like, I've been talking about this for like a good six months like this is like my short film idea that I really need to make before the not the end of this year but I'm trying to make like this winter like I really want that to be my first short please so, please, please yes please I mean yeah I mean if someone steals it like the idea from this podcast like, we are on the record like it was said on March 28th out loud that this is my idea so if you steal this True. idea then like I'll see you in court, I guess. But yeah, or you can just start writing it tomorrow, um, and then if you need, Niles shaking his head for the listening people listening. Niles shaking his head, saying, "Tomorrow, I want to take a nap. Like I don't yeah. want to start this tomorrow." But that's real. I will start it this season. Yeah, yeah, that's I too. Yeah, that's too hilarious and heartbreaking and relatable <laughs> to not be made in the next like little bit. Yeah, like, like we've all been there. Yeah, y'all. Right, well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. The Performance Lab podcast was brought to you by Contemporary Performance Network. In association with the Sarah Lawrence College Theater MFA program. For more information, please visit our websites at www.contemporaryperformance.com or www.slctheater.com.